0: Hey everyone, this is Michael. In conducting the interview for this episode, I was joined by Courtney Hammond-Wagner. Courtney is a previous guest of the show, and in the future will be leading her own episodes. Courtney is a postdoctoral scholar in the Sustainable Groundwater Program at Water in the West at Stanford University. Before this, she received her PhD in natural resources from the University of Vermont, where today's guest, Meredith Niles, currently works as an assistant professor. And before that, She received her bachelor's in psychology from Dartmouth College, where I currently work. So there's lots of connections to be made here. Enjoy. Hi everyone, we're here with Meredith Niles, who is an assistant professor in the food systems program in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences at the University of Vermont. Meredith, I understand you're also associated with the Gund Institute, you're a Gund fellow. Before getting into your current position, which we definitely wanna get to, I'd love to just hear about how you got to where you are, and I can make that more specific because that's quite a daunting question. I mean, so I was looking at your CV and obviously looking at your background, and in particular, I saw that between your, your bachelor's work and your graduate school time, you spent some time working at different nonprofits, et cetera. Um, I have the impression that you're also interested in doing applied work within academia. So I was interested in your time leading up to going into grad school. What led you to that? Were there different epiphanies? How do you make sense of yourself? What are the different origin stories you tell yourself about how you got, got to where you are?
1: That's a great question. Um, and what my academic CV does not actually show is also the, uh, <laughs> the time I spent in New Zealand working at a ski resort and also bartending. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> so enough. there's a, a number of things that um, are on the CV and a number of things that aren't on the CV. Um, so I guess a, a good place to start is, is like the long standing interest I've had in policy and the intersection of the environment and food systems and policy. And that uh-huh. is sort of a common thread through my entire my entire research career, but also my applied and non-academic career as well. So I studied political science as an undergraduate um, and had an honors focus in environmental studies. And because I went to school in Washington, D.C., I had great opportunities for internships. And so Actually, started an internship my senior year um, at the State Department in HIV/AIDS public health and um, our global programs in HIV/AIDS public health, and that was a position that I actually continued in as a as sort of an employee um, after I graduated. So I had a really like those kinds of stories that we talk about as undergraduate you know advisors, like you should get an internship and then it'll lead to a job, like and actually say that happens so that's that's good to tell my students but yeah. that really um, that really exposed me to you know the real policy world like what actually happens inside of policy and i was particularly working um, in congressional relations and public affairs for hiv aids office and so I interacted a lot with congressional officials. I interacted a lot with the media, um, but was working in a government agency and sort of on a topic that really spanned lots of different um, agencies, Peace Corps, USAID, Department of State, Defense, et cetera. So I think that policy, that real-world policy experience um, has really shaped a lot of how I still conduct research now. And also the kinds of work and the kinds of people that, that I spend my time with in terms of research. Uh, but I also got pretty fed up working in the federal government
0: okay. and had
1: always wanted to travel. And so I did then, um, actually, I, I went abroad for about 16 months and I traveled in Southeast Asia and China and Tibet and then wound up in New Zealand for about a year. And that actually also then led me to my future work. And long story short, I came back from that time abroad, really reflecting a lot on my interest in policy and agriculture and the environment. Um, And did a short stint in outdoor education and then wound up back in DC, um, working for a sort of consumer nonprofit. And uh, again, as an intern, a 25 year old intern, also a humbling experience I talk to my undergraduates about (laughs) when you're trying to sort of break into a new topic or a new area or expand like your past into a different place. Um, Sometimes taking an internship is what you have to do, but I actually was only an intern at that organization for two months before they offered me a full-time job and that was directing their climate change and agriculture um, program. So looking at how food systems are affected by climate change and contribute to climate change. And since you've seen my CV, you know that that is a thread of my work um, that has continued today. And so it was really that nonprofit and government experience that um, even got me interested in thinking about graduate school. I had zero desire to go to graduate school uh, when I finished undergrad. In fact, my brother was doing his master's and Ph.D. at the time, and I thought he was crazy. But then once I found something that I really... I really felt passionately about and was really excited about it made me think about doing a PhD. And so that led me to, to Davis. Um, and so I started at UC Davis in 2009 for my PhD. And my last day of work actually in DC was the day that the Waxman-Markey bill, which was this really, could have been a really prominent climate change policy passed one part of, of the, um, the the legislature, but not the other house, and so it was like writing on the wall that we weren't actually going to achieve this pretty significant climate policy.
0: So, is that you mentioned? So, you left DC twice. Yeah. And the first and I time... thought I was
1: going to go back. I should also add that when I went to do my PhD, okay. I had no intention of becoming an academic.
0: <laughs> this is, okay. Let Let see how, how that worked state. out. Yeah. yeah.
1: Wait, can I jump
2: in on that, Michael? Sure. Okay, so Meredith, this was one of the things that I've wanted to ask you because I've heard you say that before a few times that you went to get your PhD and still had no intention of going to, into academia. So, and I don't think I've ever heard you describe what changed.
1: Well, I guess I should clarify that the reason um, when I left DC to go do my PhD, I, what I saw was not a lack of scientific understanding for the causes of climate change. You know, we had pretty good scientific information, even in you know ten years ago, about what the issue was, what the problems were. But what we didn't have was behavioral change and policy support, and that's what I became incredibly interested in. But didn't see myself as wanting to stay in academia. Instead, I always envisioned I would go back to D.C. and work at the interface of science policy and work in the policy context um, to you know, on these issues related to agriculture and food systems and climate change. Yeah, so when I got to Davis, uh, my advisor at UC Davis was Mark Lubell, who I know that you've worked with, um, Michael, or followed his work at least, uh, talked about on the podcast a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I told Mark from the day I got there, just so you know, I'm not interested in academia. I want to go back to DC. I want to work in policy. And that was really interesting because, you know, Mark is a preeminent policy scholar and environmental policy scholar, and, but he's never worked in policy. So we, we had a lot of interesting conversations when I was a graduate student working on, on research together about like, is this how it really works? Like on the inside, because studying it from the outside versus living it from the inside, you know, it looks very different sometimes. Um, but to answer your question, Courtney, what changed was a couple of things. I started teaching. I co-taught a class with a professor um, my last two years at at Davis, which was uh, Current Issues in the Environment, sort of a very general ed undergrad class that designed to expose lots of different kinds of students to environmental issues more broadly. And I taught sort of the policy and all the sort of um, ag and social science aspects of the class. Um, And I really enjoyed that. I had 120 students and started to see teaching as something that could be part of a broader thing that I do. Um, And I think the other thing that changed was I started to see how research actually can be embedded and influence a policy process. Um, And so there are a lot of opportunities for strong research um, communicated well and um, put into the policy sphere in the right ways to actually bring to bear some of the things that I was interested in working on from the inside, from a policy perspective. So actually even, I don't know if I ever told you this Courtney, but um, when I was choosing my sort of post PhD career options, I had two on the table. So one was a post-doctorate fellowship in sustainability science at Harvard's Kennedy School. And that's the one I chose. But the other option that was on the table was a AAAS mm-hmm. science policy fellowship in Congress. And I turned that one down and went the Kennedy school route because I thought, well, it's still the Kennedy school, it's still government. So even if I want to go back into policy, I'll be coming out of the Kennedy school. Um but I don't know. Then I got like deeply embedded and here I am five years later and like, you know, going up for tenure soon at an academic institution. So yeah, lots of lots of things there to unpack, I guess. Yeah, it seems like you're in it
2: now, huh? It feels that way. Although I still feel like I have my pulse on the policy scene too. So one thing that I feel like maybe building off of that, your answer that seems to really influence your work is this mix between really applied and community engaged work and linking that with theory, policy theory and social psychological theory. And I don't, maybe more generally, I'm curious how you how you think about that in your work, how you how and when you bring theory into questions and how you address research questions
1: at, you know, an applied and theoretical level. Mm-hmm. It's a really great question because the two are sometimes at odds with each other. So if you really want to work with an application that especially is with stakeholders and trying to address stakeholder Needs and interest it doesn't often or always align with theoretical questions. So there's a constant balance I think between trying to to do work that helps you know answer farmers' questions, answer the work that the Farm Bureau has an interest in, um, answer the work of an environmental nonprofit, versus like some of the more deeply theoretical questions that those of us in academia might want to ask. And so. I think it's, it's, a, it's a balance. Like when I put together research questions, when I develop surveys, I'm thinking about both the framing of the questions that could lead to asking theoretical questions based on theory, based on existing um, you know underlying frameworks. But I'm also incorporating questions frequently that have more to do with the needs of the people that I'm collaborating with um, on some of those, especially applied projects. So I can think of you know a, an example from our California water work um, where we collaborated very closely with the farm bureaus, the county farm bureaus across the four counties that we worked with. And you know, they reviewed all of our survey instruments. They had the opportunity to add questions that were of interest to them, to tweak questions that um, didn't seem framed correctly. So we were able to to embed theoretical questions in that that we knew could contribute to theoretical questions. But at the same time, we, we definitely added questions that were entirely because the Farm Bureau was interested in understanding those outcomes. So I think it's a balance. And it's also a balance because a lot of the theoretical papers or even the papers we write based on theory aren't really of interest to the stakeholders. I don't know that the Farm Bureau will read our academic papers, but they certainly read and disseminate the research briefs that we put together, which are much more about the descriptive statistics of the outcomes of the questions, and less so about some of the theoretical underpinnings. So then translating the academic papers is a whole nother step, I think, that, um, that happens through, through different pathways and avenues if you want to communicate that beyond just the academic literature.
0: And Meredith, from your point of view, do you see these reports that are so useful to actors in the field as, be, are they perceived as being extracurricular academically?
1: That is such a good question. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just recently having a conversation with my provost about this, actually. Mm. Um, I think that our incentive structures in academia are... Especially for someone who is at a land-grant institution and was previously at a land-grant institution for my PhD, um, we don't deeply value or incentivize um, those kinds of applied outcomes. So I can put them on my CV. You know, I have them on my website. It's the non-formal things that I think are especially challenging to incentivize. So we have a whole section on the lab website for all the research briefs that we produce and so people could go they share those they shared them through extension we've shared them with media they've been reported on but i'll give you an example of something that's like far less tangible i do a little bit of work on food waste and understanding people's perceptions of food waste and their behaviors and some of the policy implications of food waste and we did a survey here in vermont um, two years ago vermonters perceptions of our food waste legislation and policy here and sort of the behaviors that they're pursuing or not pursuing, I guess, to reduce food waste. And I got an email after we just published the peer-reviewed version of the paper two months ago or so. I got an email from one of the solid waste districts here in the state, and they wanted me to run a data analysis for them on just their county's subset of responses so that they could understand how their residents in their county were thinking about food waste going to respond to this legislation and this policy, for example. And I agreed to do it, you know, and, but it took me probably the better part of a day to like run the same analysis for all the data, like just with this subset population and give them, you know, the right output and some figures and things like that. I don't know how to put that on my CV. You know, I don't know how to, there isn't like a brief I can point to. So I do think that when you do this applied work, it's a little bit more challenging to like tangibly.
0: To make it legible, right?
1: Yeah, and I think part of like, there's a really easy option and solution, I think, to like at least give people an option there. And that's just change our, our reporting forms. So I have an annual workload meeting with my department chair. I have to fill out a piece of paper before I do that every year. We could just put a section on that that asks for us to talk about the ways that we've you know, engaged with stakeholders in our research. Um, just that kind of signaling, I think, to have a space in my tenure packet to describe that would be useful. But yeah, a lot of the stuff that I do is like, you know, the one-off like couple of hours here or there for different groups that you just don't even really think about and doesn't translate well into the sort of academic space.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, being governance scholars, right, it's very interesting to be a little reflexive about this. I see this as being a pretty ubiquitous challenge in measurement and incentive structures. I learned this mostly from James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, where he talks about the importance for a government or a large enterprise to make the system its governing legible. So, right, so it'll choose simplified metrics in lieu of more complicated, as you know, you mentioned the word informal, more informal practices. And I think it's it relates to this theory-apply distinction. It also relates to Teaching practices, right? I mean, it's a lot of the best teaching and mentoring that gets done is, is almost, I mean, at least some of it needs to be informal, right? Where there's these mentor-mentee relationships that are built up over time. No one would seriously consider kind of documenting that in some kind of highly quantified way. I mean, you know, if you had your students sign a piece of paper that said they came to your office at the end of the meeting, that would, I think, would almost crowd out some of the mm-hmm. goals that you're trying to develop. Um, okay. So there's so much to, to still, I mean, goodness. So you going back to your discussion with Mark Lubell, a question I wanted to ask you then is, do you think that more people should have this policy experiences that you had? Do you think that there's really something that's not fungible? So I could be a policy scholar without any real policy experience and study it for 30 years write a lot of articles, et cetera, but is there something that I'm just always gonna be missing if I, d- I didn't actually have actual policy experience? You get where I'm going with this, is that there's mm-hmm. something unsubstitutable here that, that you mm-hmm. have because of that experience?
1: Honestly, I think so. And I think it's also, I've had policy experiences in, in multiple ways. So I've worked inside the government. I've also worked as a lobbyist in different ways and tried to be an influencer. So in some ways, I feel like when I think about like our governance frameworks and some of the work that we all think about, like I've lived in multiple actor boxes. And so I think when I reflect on some of those, when I reflect on the role that those different actors play, I can place myself in a lot of those roles. So I think that's what's potentially really different that personal experience, which obviously doesn't translate to every single topic that I study, you know, but I feel like because I've worked inside government, because I've tried to influence government, because I've worked in different organizations in the actor arena, that I have a better sense at least of what it might look like on, for real on the inside as opposed to theoretically.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is one of the the criticisms of the stereotypical academic is that they like to draw lots of boxes and arrows and make things very complicated without a sense of like how this actually maps onto the world. And then they get frustrated when people don't implement
1: Mm -hmm.
0: the stuff that they've written into a PDF.
1: Right. So maybe it just means that my blind spots are a little bit like more Mm. apparent potentially, like Hmm. because I've lived in parts of it, I have a good sense for, you know, how things really work, but also like, where I may or may not really have a strong understanding with the study that I did, for example. Like, did I really capture all of the dynamics that are going on when Mm -hmm. I reflect back to like how things really worked when I was inside the government? You know, is that really captured in this like survey or in this like case study? You know, I I think that it's really hard, like most systems, to capture all of the complex relationships. And so probably more than anything, having worked on the inside, it's like realizing all the other things that are going on that probably are are things that we haven't always captured in the, the research that we're doing. And it's really challenging to capture those things coming back to this like informal word that we keep using. Um, the informal norms and the informal ways that things happen in government are really challenging to control for and study.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're they're invisible a lot of the time. And if I think a lot of the challenge is you don't know what you don't know.
1: Right. So, if you don't even know that these things are these informal things are happening, then there's no way you're going to be able to to develop a research um, methodology that even can capture something you don't know is going on.
0: Right. You can't chuck them into a regression and control for them. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're thinking. You're yes, doing.
1: at least I don't try to.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
1: So I think
2: well, this is more of a comment on what you just said, Meredith. I think one way that I see it in your work, what you just described is, there's a tendency i think in a lot of work that's a little more removed and maybe people who have less of the policy experience that you bring to research to sort of draw these concrete like this is this is the result therefore we must do you know x and i think it has a tendency to sort of create these barriers of placing blame in places and maybe creating more of a a division or an, an us versus them. I think of this with a lot of the farmer work that we do, where often around water quality issues, around groundwater, farmers are really, you know, become the, they, they get a lot of blame placed on them. Um, and where I see your work is sort of trying to dig into the nuance of that, you know, and that there isn't a, an us versus them dynamic at play. And that may be, I mean, at least the way I see it is it makes more space for policy to actually engage and have an impact.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's a tough balance to have, but you know, I think there's, there's so much more complexity in these systems and in these policies than a lot, of, a lot of the academic work can even bring to bear. And I'll give you an example that you know I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I had some work working with dairy farmers and looking at manure management, nutrient management with dairy farmers and dairy farmers get a lot of blame for water quality issues. And simultaneously, dairy farmers are getting a lot of blame for greenhouse gas emissions. And some of the recent work that we've published, looking at that sort of balance, it really shows that what we've seen is um, a lot of uh, shift towards these larger sort of liquid manure systems, these really big lagoons, for example, in places like Wyoming and other states over the last several decades, which has had a negative impact on greenhouse gas emissions. But it has a positive impact on water quality, because it allows for these dairy farms to store the manure and apply it in more prescribed times, not have to apply it every day or like every couple of days when there might be rain coming, for example. So this is like a great example of a current set of policies in place with environmental implications and one type of policy signal was telling farmers to put in this infrastructure to ensure that they're complying with water quality regulations or thinking about water quality. Simultaneously, that infrastructure they were being encouraged to put in is leading to greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's like, well, which environmental outcome are we controlling for? Which one do we care about? And how do dairy farmers actually make decisions about this stuff? Because one agency is telling them to do X and another another one is telling them that what they're doing is causing, you know, Y um, and they're frustrated, right? And so if you're actually the dairy farmer sitting at, at the intersection of that conversation, what you see are two different government agencies basically fighting with each other and telling you to do something different. And that's really frustrating, right? Um, and so I think the, the nuance and the complexity of, of the environmental solutions and the policy solutions to help us get to a better environmental outcome aren't so black and white all the time. Um, and uh, I think acknowledging that and bringing that to light creates opportunity for new engagement with different kinds of stakeholders, but also highlights that like our policy complexity is like crazy too. And all the things that we think should be happening have a lot of potential unforeseen consequences, both within policy and outside of policy.
0: So in that context, do you think that policy, and maybe this is not a meaningful question, needs to get more versus less complex?
1: More complex?
0: (laughs) (laughs) To to, to explain a little bit, I think... I think, think
1: well, I was just going to say what I think that we are really good at doing in government agencies is boxing out our sort of piece of the pie. So and, and we have to, right, because there are certain pieces of legislation and statute that provide jurisdiction for one agency to handle one thing versus another, right? So from a legal standpoint, agencies have a set of things that they're tasked with doing. What I think there's great opportunity to improve is the capacity for agencies to have more cross conversations. And for us to think about policy in a broader systems way That isn't always apparent and isn't always happening. And so when we start to think systematically about a given issue, we realize it links across these other areas and other agencies um, in a way that right now I think a lot of our current government agency structure just doesn't allow. There's another great example out of Vermont right now with food waste. So we have this food waste policy that's um, by July 1st, 2020, Vermont will be the first state in the country to ban food waste from landfills. Um, And that is period. So household food waste, restaurants, hospitals, you name it. And as part of the policy, there's an encouragement to um, donate food that's still edible to food banks, for example, um, but also food that could be fed to animals to be fed to animals. Well, in the process of diverting food waste to feed chickens, there's also been this big issue here in Vermont where now chicken farmers are being regulated basically as solid waste districts because Under the definition of farming by the Agency of Agriculture, they're no longer farming because now they're managing food scraps. And so there was like this just crazy, if you're on the outside, sort of challenge right now where chicken farmers are being told by the Agency of Natural Resources, they need that if they want to feed food scraps, then that's actually falling under a non-farming definition as determined by the Agency of Agriculture. And now they have to get solid waste district permits. So if you're a chicken farmer, you know, that just feels like, wait, aren't we trying to reduce food waste? Aren't we trying to repurpose food waste? And now we're regulating farmers as if they're solid waste handlers. So, you know, that level of complexity, that's what I'm talking about when I say there's opportunity for us to, yes, I think um, maybe not further complicate policy, but use a systems level approach to think about how a given policy implemented might have reaches across different agencies um, in ways that we currently aren't always thinking about
0: that's really interesting it sounds like it's a it's a plea for essentially coherence across different agencies
1: I think so and I think there's a lot I mean there's a lot that happens in that space um, you know think about climate change and the impacts that climate change is going to have across so many things in our lives and so facilitating these interagency working groups or interagency collaborations around key topics, I think is um, is really important as we move forward in what feels like an increasingly complex world, for sure.
0: Hmm. I mean, it reminds me, I don't know how direct a, an example this is, but I have my students each year in my policy class read Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert Book where he talks a lot about essentially a turf war between the bureau of reclamation and the army corps of engineers about who gets to build what dams where Mm -hmm. and for what purposes and so you just have this history of of these different agencies you know some okay you take the east of the mississippi we'll take the west and we're going to have dams for flood control you're going to have them for hydroelectric et cetera. and first time i read the book i you know i don't have any agency experience it really was eye-opening to me because of course I mean, agencies are full of people, just like every organization, and so they're going to kind of want to implement their their goals and the mission of their agency, and that's their perspective, but I think and they're also that, competing yeah. for money <laughs> right
1: let's not forget that the budget also is directing a lot of the like my agency versus your agency funding in a lot of cases
0: yeah, it's interesting. it's kind of the whole it's one of the things I think it's hidden by the the state market. Dichotomy, right? We think that organizations, aka firms, in the market are subject to all of this competition, and we kind of forget that public organizations have their own competitive dynamics as well, maybe with some similar results. I mean, people talk about the overreach of agencies as their missions kind of get bigger and bigger, and that's a critique of public agencies. But I think a reasonable hypothesis that this can happen in private firms as well, right? Like, why do I need all the bells and whistles that I now have a Microsoft Word? Well. Argue, you know, I've always had this like little mini hypothesis. is because basically they just keep need to it, furthering their these little missions that they have because someone needs to do something. Okay, I'll, that's a little cynical as a <laughs> conclusion, but okay. Getting back to this, this distinction between theory and applied work, I've wondered whether there's a feeling among parts of academia that theore- theoretical work is better. I mean, what is your feeling about the current state of the discourse regarding theory versus applied work? Do you think that there's some good stuff that's been written about it? Do you think that there's more stuff that could be written about it to help guide future academics in this space?
1: That's a great question. Courtney and I've chatted a little bit about this spectrum. Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, I don't really think there should be a debate. You know, I, I just don't I don't really get like the, the academic territory fight, I guess. Um, I think we need both. And I think that the best research has aspects of all of that. I think purely applied work that has no capacity to advance our understanding of a given topic beyond one-off case studies is only really useful for that particular place in that application. Purely theoretical work also absent its capacity to be applied, um, is also really, I think, challenging in some ways. So where I've tried to ground a lot of my work, at least, is at the intersection of those things, um, recognizing that we still need basic science, social science, obviously, in theory, to advance our understanding of human behavior and policy systems. But at the end of the day, that has to be applied in some way for it to to move the needle on the challenges that we face as a society. Mm. And so purely theoretical work in a human context, especially, you know, ultimately has to be applied and tested. Otherwise, I'm not quite sure how it's helping us um, solve some of the pressing challenges that we have. I think the hard part is where that intersection happens and how you do that work. And I definitely, I've struggled with that, to be totally honest. And in some ways, I feel like my work is probably more theoretical on the spectrum than, or sorry, probably more applied than theoretical on the spectrum, but still bringing to bear a lot of theories and testing theories out. And actually, there's one I can mention right now that we're finding is sort of just falling flat. And that might not have been discovered had it not been um Pushed in a real-world context. This is work with one of my PhD students, Luis, who's from Puerto Rico, and we've got a project working with um, farmers in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, understanding how they were affected by Hurricane Maria and their adaptation. And we've been using um, a a theory, the psychological distance of climate change, psychological distance theory, um, actually it was like most of my dissertation work, draws on construal level theory and this idea of how people perceive the here and now in the abstract versus the the um, the tangible. And there's been a lot of arguments that if global warming and climate change was perceived to be closer to an individual, that that would um, cause them to support climate policies or um, adopt climate mitigation behaviors. And so a lot of the work that's come out of Uh, Europe on this in particular, and even my own work for my dissertation really showed that people who were more exposed to climate events and extreme events or thought that climate change was happening were more likely to um, be concerned about it and more likely to support policies and change their behaviors. But what some of our work um, from Puerto Rico is showing is that we're probably reaching a threshold on that. You know, in places that extreme events are only continuing to increase, what we found was both an acknowledgement that it was a local issue affecting people there and a global issue affecting people far away. And I expect that that's probably gonna be where we, this theory goes, right? It's not just about making climate change close to home. It's also about this recognition that it's both local and global. And so as the sort of understanding of climate change and the increase in extreme events continues to happen, um, I think the theory is shifting. And you know, that's being realized through applied work um, with real people on the ground after real events. So um, that's work that we're hoping to submit soon. But I think that's an example of sort of like a theory that in practice, we're starting to see is shifting.
0: Okay, oh dear, Meredith, you're bringing up too many interesting things at once. Let's see. <laughs> I mean, so um, I, I really do want to talk about the, the work involving social psychology. I, I, I was looking at one or two articles where you you use the psychological distance theory. It, it, it sounded to me like kind of salience bias, something that I think a lot of us experience in our lives, right? Whereas as soon as you, if you have someone in your life who's had cancer or been traumatized or something like that, like suddenly it becomes much more of an issue for you. So it, it sounds like there's, it's one of these theories for which there's a lot of like emotionally intelligent intuition. There's a lot of sense that it makes to most humans. But before we get to that, I was interested in f- wrapping up this, this conversation about applied versus theoretical work. So I've become very interested in a type of person that I've been calling like a boundary actor. And there's a whole literature, of course, on this largely um, related to the science policy interface, where bo- there's a literature that says basically we need we need boundary actors to kind of span these two worlds. And I think it's actually generalizable beyond that context. I think it's You know and you were mentioning you know why is there a divide between theory and applied it reminded me of what courtney was saying earlier about you know maybe part of what's going on is like it's kind of this us versus them mentality that human beings so much fall into particularly when you have like an a versus b framing that part of me thinks just like mechanizes our groupish instincts to think okay well i should i should find a side here and i've been wondering about the possibility of like boundary actors to basically or boundary spanners right to to bridge that gap. Have you experienced yourself as a boundary actor, kind of going from one world to the next, because you're able to, to talk about, use one kind of lingo maybe, uh, in one context versus another? Does that make sense to you? Is that is that word help you make sense of the experiences you've had in these different worlds?
1: Yeah, thank you for helping me define myself. Um, I feel like for so long, I, I just really, yeah, I really appreciate this idea that like this us versus them. I, I just don't, I don't find that framing in most contexts in life to be very useful and look at sort of our current political context and it feels like we're really in that and Hmm. it doesn't feel like it's helping, um, a lot of our discourse and conversations, um, And listen, the reality is, like, people are interested in different things and people are good at different things. And so, like, we can't expect one single person to always do everything, right? We can't expect someone to be a good researcher and also communicate all of their work perfectly to policymakers, Um, all the time, right? And so we do need those boundary actors or those boundary organizations. Um, And some people are really well suited to that. And um, I definitely consider myself as someone who falls probably within that space, Mm
0: -hmm. although
1: there are lots of other organizations out there doing great work in that space as well. Like the Union of Concerned Scientists, for example, I think about um, playing playing that role from an organizational standpoint. Um, but but I think part of it is also helping people self-identify like where their interests are and where their strengths are. And then that's okay, right? Like nobody has to do everything, but then let's give people access to resources or to other people or organizations that might help them translate their work. So not every theoretical... Um, academic wants to live in that world. And that's okay. We shouldn't expect that every single scientist should have to be proficient in writing policy briefs and spend their time doing it. But I do think that universities and institutions need to invest in people to help them do that. And this is a good plug for the Gund Institute who is doing that. You know, The Gund Institute for Environment at UVM has a policy director um, who comes from a science policy interface background and his entire job is to help the fellows and the affiliates at the Gund Institute um, translate their work into policy. And I think that's a great example of how institutions can can help scholars do that work and not also expect academics to to do everything. You know, we're increasingly being asked to do so much already. We can't we can't expect people to carry the weight of all of these things. But I do think that institutions can invest in that and help facilitate that process.
0: Mm.
2: Can I jump in on Um, that? Courtney, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to give an example where I think our work, Meredith, has been like a surprising boundary object. When you think about the survey with groundwater, on groundwater and farmers in California, how this survey that that we did in like four counties, right? How randomly we started seeing questions from our survey pop up in other counties where we weren't Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that that your introduction of these concepts and these questions and ideas that are important for the policy process got adopted into other policy processes where we weren't working. There was this sort of spillover. And so I I wanted to, I just wanted to bring that up and see if you want to comment on it.
1: I kind of forgot that happened, but yeah, that's a really interesting example where, um, questions from our survey, yeah, were adopted by other policy groups and GSAs, groundwater sustainability agencies. They started using them and asking them of, of farmers in their counties as well. Um, yeah, so I think that's a, like a real-world example of how, you know, living or being open to living in that space and making your work available and, and um, putting it out there in ways that are accessible can really have real-world impacts. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So getting back to an element of your work that you mentioned, which is the use of psychological distance theory. This is something I've been struggling with in whatever field we think we're talking about, environmental, social science, et cetera, is um, one of the frontiers feels like it's, it's that we need to engage more with, with psychological theory and understanding people's motivations, et cetera, as we move beyond the kind of rational actor model as a bit of a straw man. Sometimes it honestly feels like at this point, Do you see, do you agree with that? Do you think that we need to kind of push, push the boundaries on incorporating more and more theory from social psychology, you know, reflect this behavioral turn in economics via experimental economics, et cetera. And if you, if you do agree with that or not, like where do you think the direction should go in terms of the relationship between like on the ground environmentally oriented social science and psychology? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've tried to bring a, a number of social psychology theories into my research over the years, and I've also worked a couple on a couple of behavioral economics approaches as well. Um, and I think there's a lot that social psychology can bring to bear on the environmental fields. And there are, you know, there are a lot of people who've been thinking about that, you know, certainly like the values, beliefs, norms, framework from Dietz and Stern has long thought about some of those social psychological elements, um, but I think the way in which we've measured those and how we can um, think more critically about measuring those, even in like controlled experiments, is, is changing as well. And, and there's a lot that, um, that we could learn from social psychology theory and, and working more with um, psychologists and sociologists, I think, in the field. Uh, one thing I will say about that, if, if we trend in that direction, is a renewed... Uh, I don't even want to say renewed, but I think an acknowledgement that we need to think really carefully about reproducibility. And psychology is going through a crisis right now. Their their words, not mine, on reproducibility of science, as are a number of other fields. Um, But psychology has sort of gotten a lot of the attention for it. There's a lot of things that are going on in that, and part of part of it is the fact that for so long. Psychological science relied on like one really particular type of subject, which were like college students um, who were, you know, generally speaking like middle income or upper income, white, you know, like all the sort of longstanding psychology from the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s was like primarily done on like a certain age demographic of white college kids. And so as we've expanded out the research into other demographics, we're finding obviously you know, those results might not be reproducible. That's part of it. But I also think, you know, as we move, if we move in that direction, that there's attention that needs to be paid to reproducible science and how we do that and how we make our data um, and our work available to ensure reproducibility. And ultimately that reproducibility or that capacity to test theories over time in different places and different ways is what also then helps us move science forward and 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 see the application of theory in, in practice.
0: Hmm. Do you think things like I mean, so one example I like to point to when I think about reproducibility is the open abm project so folks that do agent-based models now when they submit to particular journals are required to include all of their code so that someone could essentially like rerun their model i thought for a while that we should have something similar with instrument-based work so that if you'd be great to have and i have a mini version of this actually basically a database of questionnaires how cool would it be to have like a a searchable database of of instruments so you could say well i want to do research on place attachment in fisheries and so maybe someone's not looked at it in fisheries but they've looked at it somewhere else this is not exactly about reproducibility it's also maybe more broadly about kind of social learning among scientists but i felt like really like the public good nature of those resources means that they're always they're always under provided right we all kind of yeah. have our own research track and that's kind of where we need to make our bread but then we have these like, we're kind of undercoordinated as a set of academics yeah.
1: can we please work on this together Sure. Oh, I have been, <laughs> I mean, for years, like Mark and I have talked about this. I mean, for years I have been saying like, it is insane to me that we are all running around asking slightly different questions and not surprised when like we can't compare our research results. Like this makes me crazy. Right. I don't understand like why we don't have this database, why we don't have a consistent set of questions that we always ask about when we think about climate change beliefs or uh like you said you know it's like fisheries based work and place attachment like you know and I think Ostrom's work and the Ostrom workshop are have like tried to do that in some ways through like their aggregation of case studies but for those of us that do more quantitative social science why don't we have a survey database like why don't we have a registry for your surveys and you can put your survey in there. Like, I also find it really strange that like, sometimes people aren't willing to share survey instruments. That's bizarre to me. Like, I just don't get that at all. Like, I don't find, I don't think that survey instruments should be proprietary. Um, You know, that's just stymieing scientific progress in my opinion. And what we need instead are, because what we're not getting in social science and why we're so hindered, I think on truly understanding a lot of these Um, challenges and being able to say anything with any sort of causal inference is we don't have panel data. We just, we, we don't have the funding for it in our work. It's just not there, first of all. And so absent panel data, the best we're going to do is much better coordination by scientists to share their survey instruments, share their questions, and encourage people to use them as freely as they want so that we can gather comparative data across time and place to more thoroughly answer these questions. And it's really strange to me that we just don't do that. We don't have a way of doing that. So maybe we need a survey database. It wouldn't be that hard. It wouldn't be that hard. Like, but think about the impact it could have, you know? And so in my own work, I've tried to, we always have the survey instrument of supplemental materials, but we've also tried to ask the same consistent set of climate questions, for example. So now we have climate data from two time periods in the same population of farmers in California. We have it from farmers in New Zealand. We have it from farmers in Puerto Rico. We have it from farmers in Vermont. Like we've tried to ask the same consistent questions, but this is just one lap. You know, and, and so I think that there's great opportunity for us to come together in the environmental social science world to um, aggregate our surveys and our instruments and to use them and to share them. And I do think that is related to the reproducibility issue, because how is something reproducible if you can't ask the same question? I mean, even using the word global warming versus climate change you're not going to get the same results, right? So Mm. there's a lot of opportunities in this space. There's opportunities for open code, uh, providing your data sets, um, open survey instruments and questionnaires, freely sharing those things. And, you know, I'm also a, a huge proponent of open science in general and open research and open access. And I serve on the board of directors for PLOS, the public library of science, and I have done that since 2014. And so I've had a lot of opportunities um, in the open science world to think about these issues. But I just, we're not gonna move the needle on science if we don't share our results and share our instruments in ways that help people use them and and, um, adapt them to other places.
0: All very well said, I totally agree. sounds like we're gonna have to have another conversation off the the record, as they say, about all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, If only we lived close to each other. Oh, wait. We do. We do, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I could kind of go on forever here. Courtney, are there other questions that you want to make sure that you get in before well, we you know, wrap up in 10, 15 minutes? If yeah. that works I mean, for you, Meredith. Meredith
2: just sort of got there, which was, I know that you're super passionate about open access. And I think you, you touched a little bit on why in that answer. But I,
1: I want to hear more from you about how you got into that and where you want to see that go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So open access was not something I really thought about until I went to publish my first research article, my first dissertation article as a grad student. There were sort of two things that happened to me in graduate school that really led me down this um, passion that I have for this issue. The first was that um, my cousin actually was diagnosed my first year of graduate school with a really rare brain cancer. Um, and if you've had anyone that's, you know been affected by a, 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 a disease or a public, um, public health threat like that, especially as being an academic, you realize like, we have access to a lot of information. And my cousin's doing great. He's, um, he's been in remission for a long time now. But what I realized was that because I was at an academic institution, I could very easily go and start looking up all the research about his condition and the studies that had been done and the survivability and the technologies that could help, help him. Um, and what I also realized was because the National Institutes of Health had adopted an open access policy a couple of years before that happened, that my family members could too. So the National Institutes of Health um, have a policy that has since sort of um, governed the direction of a lot of other federal agency policies that within one year of publication of your research funded by the National Institutes of Health, it has to go into PubMed Central, the database for, um, for that. And lots of stuff are in PubMed Central now, not just health research, but you know, I sort of realized, like, I was in an incredible place of privilege because I was at an academic institution and I could very easily start looking at this research, not only having the scientific background to sort of broadly understand it at least as well, but just like literally having access to the information. And so that just started me thinking a lot about why and how we tie up knowledge and who has access to that knowledge. And and I actually truly see this as a, a an equity issue and a social justice issue. And, um, What happened next was when I went to start to publish my own research, I realized that some of the journals that I was thinking about publishing it in were not going to be journals that the farmers I was working with would actually be able to see their own, like the the results of the work with these farmers was going to wind up behind a paywall where farmers were going to have to pay 40 bucks to see it, you know. And obviously, I was going to share the article with them. But just the principle of that, like, I really started to think about that a lot more carefully. Um, Like, what are we doing in academia? You know, in my case, I had five years of public funding. I was completely funded by the National Science Foundation um, under a graduate research fellowship and a National Science Foundation IGERT for my, my research. So I was entirely publicly funded and then took all this public money did this work f- with application for agriculture and climate change in a in county I was living in, and then was gonna turn around and publish it in a journal that they were gonna have to pay money to see it. Like, I just really started to think about the, the model that that is embedded in sort of scientific um, publishing and really started to think about that. And I, so I published my first dissertation chapter in PLOS One, which is an open access publisher. Um, Uh, I'm sorry to say I did not publish all of my dissertation articles open access, and there's lots of reasons why that happened, but I have since made a pledge that all of my work is open access, um, either through an explicit publication in an open access journal, or through making the um, peer reviewed version um, publicly available in a scholarly repository. I also no longer review for Elsevier or any Elsevier journal, um, I won't serve on their editorial boards. Um, there's a, a, a number of people, um, thousands of scientists who've made that pledge now as well. I could talk about why Elsevier in particular, uh, as opposed to other publishers. But, but I think the big picture here for me is, I think when we actually sit down to think about this model, most of us will realize like something is wrong. Um, I think there's a lot that needs to change in scientific and academic publishing. And and at the end of the day, it's really us, it's us as scientists who are giving our copyright to for-profit publishers in most of the cases. And so I just have a real problem with that. You know, if we're the ones doing the research and it's our hard work and our government funding and our writing and our students that have written this, that have spent the time to create this knowledge, to synthesize it and to try to advance scientific understanding. Why should we ever sign a copyright agreement that gives all of that to a for profit publisher? That just doesn't make sense to me, um, and I don't think it makes sense to most academics. I think we're just embedded in a world of, of publishing that um, has for a very long time relied on this model and I think there's great opportunity for for researchers and scientists to take back their own work and to remove it from those systems um, but really it was it was my Uh, personal experience with a public health issue or or a a cancer issue, as well as then my engagement with applied people that really made me start to think about this. And and then I became um, really active in advocacy. I did a lot of lobbying, actually, at both the state of California level and the federal level to um, pass open access legislation requiring publicly funded work to be made available um, that would just circumvent the entire sort of for-profit publisher issue. Um, if there was a piece of legislation that government funded work had to be made available, um, I've continued to advocate for these policies at academic institutions like the University of California that has an open access policy now, Harvard um, has a policy, and I'm working on one um, at UVM as well. So it's, uh, it's a topic that I just feel really passionately about, and especially since my graduate or my postdoctorate work started to move into the realm of. Um, uh, low-income countries and working with smallholder farmers at the at the sort of forefront of climate change and food security, I've seen that in a whole different light now as well, knowing that um, who can't see the research has huge impacts on capacity for researchers in low-income countries as well.
2: Yeah, thanks Meredith. I, I feel like you've definitely opened up my eyes to that as one of your students, so I appreciate that, and I'm wondering for people who are new to thinking about open access, do you have resources you could point people to or um, things people can do to learn more?
1: There's so many resources. Um, So let's see, Um, a couple that are really helpful would be SPARC, the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition. They are a group of academic research libraries and they have lots of like FAQs and other great resources on their website. They also have a list of all of the libraries globally who have canceled their Elsevier subscriptions, which is I think really helpful for librarians. One thing that's um, for individual researchers that I think is really helpful is a site called Sherpa Romeo. And that site actually allows you as a researcher to look up individual journals and to understand what rights you do have based on the journal to share a preprint or a a peer reviewed version of the author accepted manuscript. And actually more than 70%, I think it's 75% of research um, of, of journals allow some form of archiving. Um, in a repository of like an author's accepted manuscript, for example. So you may not be able to put the fully formatted Nice Publishers PDF version on your website or in a scholarly repository, but chances are really good that you can put the accepted author's accepted manuscripts in, in the repository. And let's see. Um, you know, the other thing that's really happening in this world, too, are, are preprints, the rise of preprints. And preprints, there's lots of, uh, like, so Archive, you know, is probably the more obvious one for this audience. But Bioarchive is getting lots and lots of um, new subscriptions. And so these are just, like, other ways of getting your work out there earlier. And most publishers also now allow for preprints. Um, but... There's just a ton of stuff happening in this space. And in general, the forefronts of this work are happening more in the biomedical um, spaces. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for the social sciences to sort of um, come along and, and continue to learn about ways to make work more publicly available.
0: Great, thank you. Well, Meredith, this is just, you've been so articulate about several important things that we've talked about. I wish I could just keep on listening to your ideas about these issues. I guess to wrap things up, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the of this interview that we would get to like your current position and where you're at now at the University of Vermont, UVM. And so we actually haven't done that. So maybe we can kind of actually <laughs> conclude just by hearing a bit about that. You mentioned the, the Gun Institute at UVM, which I'm kind of broadly aware of, but not as, as well as maybe I should. So I would just love to hear about your time since coming to UVM. How it's been for you there, and kind of what you're hoping uh, to do moving forward um, in that position.
1: Great, yeah. Thanks for that. I guess we should actually talk about what I'm doing now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been at UVM since August 2015, and you know, I I continue to span. I think the the disciplinary um, backgrounds that I have sort of my entire career since being at UVM. Um, because all of my work is, or most of my work, I should say, is focused on sort of the environmental social science context within food systems. Mm-hmm. I actually am in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences, but I work with people all across campus. So I have colleagues in the Rubenstein School for Environment, Plant and Soil Sciences, Community Development, Applied Economics. Increasingly, I'm working more and more in the Computer science, complex systems, and data science group, as well Um, as some of my work starts to get into the big data world and starting to work with some really large data sets on some of my climate climate work. Um, And the Gund Institute for Environment has been a really great home for me. Um, I became a fellow in twenty seventeen, and. I just find it a a great Institute to catalyze uh, interdisciplinary work across campus. And so we have people from all of the colleges represented in the Gund Institute. We also have affiliates that are outside of UVM as well. So lots of other research institutions, but also nonprofit groups and government agencies um, that are in some way working on pressing environmental problems. Um, And the Institute has really grown. So Mm. it was, previously the Gund Institute for Ecological Economics, so a little bit more narrowly focused, Um, and it has since sort of gone through this um, expansion, and we have um, core themes, four core themes that sort of unite the work that Gund does around health and climate and sustainable agriculture and food systems, Um, and Taylor Ricketts, who's the director of the Gund Institute, has really shepherded in a whole new, yeah, just new era, I think. We've We've launched um, lots of new research awards. In fact, we have a a postdoctorate fellows program and we just launched two new postdoctorates this year alone. So one in energy and climate, one in regenerative agriculture. Uh, We bring in PhD students through the Gund Institute. Um, like five or six every year plus then there's now a visiting scholars program so something that we should think about maybe for you or others out there listening Um, that just got announced a couple weeks ago so we have funding to support sabbatical visits and other kinds of visits We have weekly um, seminars, people across campus and beyond campus presenting their work. And we recently just moved into a brand new building. So we were sort of housed in this very centrally located but very small house. And um, we have a new STEM building on campus. And so the computer science folks went over to the new STEM building, and we actually took over an entire hall, um, whole building that previously they had. And so we just have lots more space now for visiting faculty and collaborations and things like that. So um, it's, a great, it's a great spot. Yeah, I think um, UVM has a lot of exciting things happening um, in environmental social sciences and food systems. And one of the things I'm really excited about and have been involved in um, is was just announced by Senator Leahy a couple of months ago, but Vermont is the newest recipient of a Agricultural Research Service um, Institute. Uh, research institute on campus, and it's a a research center for sustainable food systems, and so that comes with um, guaranteed uh, funding at a certain level um, annually, and it's going to be a great opportunity for us to co-locate USDA research scientists on campus with food systems scholars um, who are doing work um, on sustainable food systems, and so I'm really excited about that opportunity coming up as well.
0: Wow. Yeah. Sounds just like there's a lot of exciting stuff going on at UVM.
1: Yeah. Come visit us sometime. We'd love to have you.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it'd be great to get you down here. I mean, I think a lot of people here benefit from engaging with you as well. So we can do some, some reciprocal exchanges here.
1: That sounds great.
0: Cool, Meredith. Well, thanks again. This was just terrific. It's everything we hope these interviews are like, so yeah, we can just follow up. We'll definitely like, I'm definitely moving forward with this questionnaire database thing. So let's do it. I love it.
1: All right, that sounds great. great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, take care.
1: All right, you too. Bye-bye.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability Podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.